The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. Together with me today is Jonathan Curtis, who's Senior VP of Franklin uh, Equity Group and runs the Franklin Technology Fund and wears a bunch of other hats at Franklin. Uh, thanks for being with us, Jonathan. Thank you. Super it's excited. too bad nothing's going on in technology. Um, uh, no, so let's let's talk a little bit first. We're going to get to a lot of uh, topics uh, uh, that are more juicy uh, as we go along here. But let's talk about the larger, sort of the big picture here. So we had a great first half in tech stocks. Uh, then we had kind of a little bit of a lull, uh, maybe for kind of in, over the summer. And it feels like we've just sort of picked back up where we started from. Talk a little bit about the broader drivers of what's been going on and where whether this rally is likely to continue. It's been, as we said, like just a fantastic year to own. Yeah. So uh, a handful of things are going on. Um, we'll first start with sort of the, the post-COVID digestion phase. Right. So obviously COVID was a tremendous boon for all things digital. We talked about it a ton with our clients. We saw massive adoption of, of digital stuff. And then the world reopened in uh, late 2021, early part of 2022. And all those growth trends that were really driving the sector uh, calmed. And in some instances, um, turned negative in terms of net new business going on. And thankfully, they did. I mean, I'm delighted to be back in the office again and out traveling and seeing clients. It's great mm -hmm. to have the world reopen. At the same time, inflation appeared and central banks did what they, they should have done, which is make the cost of capital higher. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these, these duration-y um, growth companies, and particularly in the technology sector, were particularly sensitive to uh, rates and they were living also on cheap capital that were fueling their growth. Right. So both two of those things reversed. Mm -hmm. um, and that that caused, caused a compression. Now let's get into this year. Um, one, we've started to hear, and in fact, I looked at it this morning on my Bloomberg terminal. We've been hearing as the year's gone on more and more confirmation that particularly in the tech sector that, that those post-COVID headwinds are subsiding and, and demand for tech is starting to stabilize. Um, and I don't know, I, I looked at the Q3 references to stabilization across earnings calls uh, over the past 90 days, and they're up something in the tech sector of something like 60% sequentially. Uh, you see right. a similar pattern in the comm services sector. So we're seeing stabilization, um, and we're seeing, importantly, evidence that inflation is getting under control, which means that central banks are not going to have to keep raising the cost of capital. So that means we're standing right. on more stable valuation multiples. Those two things together. Oh, and I'll add maybe one other thing. Also evidence that the layoffs in the tech sector are calming mm -hmm. um, have all been signs that the demand environment is stabilizing and it's safer to get back in the waters with regards to owning these companies. And then maybe one final thing. We have, we've got this new growth driver that is emerging in the sector around generative AI. We are 
moving out of the build and experimentation phase and we're just starting to poke into the application phase. Mm -hmm. And that lull that we saw in the summer was in part due to investors going, all right, well, I've seen all the excitement in NVIDIA, like where's the beef? Where, where's the application of this? When, when will Microsoft start benefiting? And we're just starting to see that coming through. And so I think that calming rates, um, the tenure coming down and evidence in Microsoft's cloud numbers of the application phase starting to pick up uh, has driven this, this last phase here. Um, now, I still think that investors do not appreciate what is coming for um, the sector broadly on the back of generative AI. And while we, we are overweight small and mid-cap stocks and underweight the Magnificent Seven, we own many of the Magnificent Seven, I mean, I can paint very bullish scenarios for almost all of them on the back of generative AI. And, and many of these companies, at least a couple of them, have the potential to double on the sale of generative AI features into their, their install basis. So, so I am bullish on the big caps companies and particularly bullish on the small mid cap companies where there's better valuations, if you will. Uh, okay. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk um, about uh, uh, what I know is one of your larger holdings, which is going to report earnings after the call, after the close today, which is NVIDIA. Yeah. Um, NVIDIA of course has had a spectacular year. Uh, it, it's just, an, it's, and and the, the stock, I've heard people make the argument that the stock, even up, you know, 200 plus percent is statistically cheaper than it was at yeah. the beginning of the year uh, because of the unbelievable growth rate that the company has been able to sustain here. And as you point out, it is clearly the biggest winner so far. Um, uh, you know, people talk about like, you know, picks and axes kind of thing, but like they they have laid the groundwork for uh, for what's to come. Uh, how are you feeling about Nvidia? That's not, I, mean, I mean, if you have thoughts about the quarter, that's great. But I'm really thinking about longer term. Um, yep. How how do they sustain what has yeah. been amazing? Well, so if, uh, on the quarter, I mean, we'll we'll see what they they how they did um, later this evening. I don't love the fact that they're reporting this evening and then their day of trading is on one of the lowest volume days of the year uh, tomorrow, which is probably going to enhance the volatility in one direction or the other. Uh, that aside. Um, I think they are they have a very bright future ahead. Um, and and it's really because not only are they a central supplier of critical infrastructure and they've got that moat around CUDA, which really helps software developers be dramatically more, more productive as they're building um, artificial intelligence applications. But I, I do not think that investors appreciate what is yet to come. We, I talked about this idea of build and experimentation phase and then the application phase. The build and experimentation phase in AI is really for the nerds and it's for like deep infrastructure people. It's for the technology companies that are doing, they're learning how to put this stuff into their products. Mm -hmm. They're guys like me are paying, paying for open AI subscriptions and I'm you know using it all the time. But the vast majority of people, this is not showing up in their lives at all yet. And yet there are hundreds of millions of knowledge workers that are about ready to have the opportunity to use these capabilities in surface areas they're in every day. The Office Suite, the Adobe Suite, software developers uh, with GitHub and GitLab, but also, you know, vast parts of the customer service support region, et cetera. So, so when Generative AI shows up in these places, the demand on the underlying infrastructure is going to be profound. Mm -hmm. And 
what we have seen thus far for NVIDIA is going to look tiny, right? Because a lot more model building will occur. A lot of inferencing will occur, and, and NVIDIA has an important uh, way to play that. But, but also other players in the semicap, uh, semiconductor space will do well as well. So I, I am very bullish long term. Uh, we've spoken to management over the past 90 to 120 days. They've been quite clear to us that, you know, even if China were to dis disappear from their demand picture or other things, that they've got enough demand from even single cloud providers that they could ship uh, all of their GPUs and not have enough. So, so we are quite confident that the near term is also quite good, but, but we're particularly bullish in the long term. So Jonathan, you, um, you allude to uh, that there are other chip plays here. Yeah. Um, which, which are the, what, what other names are you, um, do you find appealing? In yeah, the... well, let, let's sort of build up from the bottom and then we'll get into the chip companies. At the bottom of everything is the, uh, the leading edge fab company and that's TSMC. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Intel's making efforts in this category, Samsung plays here, but, but nobody is as good and has the breadth of capabilities that TSMC has. So, so they're essential as these, is the, the transition to accelerated computing goes on a lot of demand is going to go through their, their fabs and their capabilities. Mm -hmm. Then you build up into uh, this, the EDA software companies. And in fact, mm -hmm. our, one of our analysts is doing some work on uh, a, pre a presentation on some of those companies today internally. But those are companies like Synopsys and Cadence that mm -hmm. really help firms like Intel and AMD and Tesla and others um, build their specialty chips for doing, for doing artificial intelligence. And as Moore's Law gets harder and harder to deal with, more and more innovations are required from these EDA software companies to help mm -hmm. really design the intricate chips. But then you get up into the, the semi-cap equipment companies, uh, the applied materials, the ASMLs, they're all essential players in this. And as again, as Moore's Law slows and more creativity is required to build these chips, the R&D intensity, the CapEx intensity also for building a chip goes up. That's great for the semi-cap equipment companies. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the chip companies themselves. Um, NVIDIA, we've already talked about them, super well positioned. Um, we own AMD in the strategy, also very well positioned. They've got uh, some emerging uh, GPU capabilities of their own. Um, the cloud providers have all figured out how to build training chips of their own. Um, but th and then, then we haven't even gotten into the inferencing opportunity. Um, a lot of inferencing is going to be done on these uh, these sort of GPU type of platforms and NVIDIA and AMD and the 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 uh, parallel compute infrastructure from the cloud providers, but also traditional CPUs. Um, now we don't own Intel in the strategy, but we do own AMD. And then there is all of the the moving data around in a data center to keep these chips fully loaded. Mm -hmm. So you need specialty networking infrastructure and specialty chips to support that. So we own companies like Marvell in the strategy. Broadcom has also done very well this year. So so there's a, a lot of opportunity down at the, the deep infrastructure layer to support this this still tons of growth that, that lies ahead on, on the building experimentation. <coughs> so um, let's switch gears a little and talk about sort of maybe the next layer, which is sort of the, the software layer. And um, you know the over the last few days, you, I, everyone who lives in, we both are in in, uh, in, in Silicon Valley, uh, everyone who is here who touches the technology industry is simply obsessed by uh, the developments at OpenAI. Uh, of course, OpenAI is 
leader in developing large language models. That we're coming up a few days away from the first anniversary of the launch of ChatGPT. Um, uh, it's remarkable how much has happened in that time period. Um, and to mark the anniversary, the board seems to have decided <laughs> to implode. So they fired uh, they fired Sam Altman, uh, Greg Brockman, who's kind of the number two guy. He resigned. Both of them were on the board, which tells you that the other four members of the board all voted to oust Sam. Lots of uncertainty about uh, exactly what transpired or what they're arguing about. Um, uh, but the bottom line is that uh, it now looks like future of open AI is suddenly quite uncertain. Almost the entire team has signed a letter basically saying, bring back Sam and Greg or we're all leaving. Uh, Microsoft has hired <laughs> both of them uh, in part to protect their own investment here, right? Because they own um, close to half of open AI um, and have made a huge bet on the, both the technology and their leaders. And so now we're in a situation where we don't know where this is going to end. Uh, there's been some reporting that suggests they could end up with a solution where Sam and Greg go back to open AI and run the company, maybe with a changed um, corporate, uh, corporate governance structure, um, maybe with Microsoft getting a board seat this time. Um, there seems to be a lot of debate about what this actually means for Microsoft. Um, there's an argument that says, well, if they hired everybody, um, if everybody leaves OpenAI and goes to Microsoft, they've essentially, uh, you know, quasi acquired OpenAI for nothing, and um, that would that's appealing for given OpenAI's valuation has been, you know, estimated in the sort of ninety billion dollar range. How do you look at this? Is this actually good news, bad news for Microsoft? What are the implications beyond Microsoft? How do you sort this out? I, I met with Satya. I think it was back in March or April of this year. And uh, this was out when it finally dawned on me how important what some of the, this stuff was. And I said, like, I'm really glad you've got a partnership with OpenAI, but I'm kind of disappointed you didn't do this on your own, right? Um, and he looked at me and he was, he basically said, Jonathan, I can't explain to you why we weren't able to, we've been investing in AI for eons and why we didn't come up with this innovation on our own. Um, I guess that's neither here nor there mm. now. Here's, this is the, the important thing to think about. I, I, while OpenAI has been building a tremendous motion around um, direct to consumer, they've got a lot of subscribers to uh, their, their premium model um, and a lot of users of their APIs that they're monetizing. I, I do not think that it's settled science yet as to whether these foundational models, uh, whether they're going to be good businesses on their own, mm -hmm. um, there are and why? Listen, I love OpenAI. It's it's clearly got the best models right now for for language, um, but that we're seeing good progress out of Meta with Llama two. Mm -hmm. um, Anthropics model is is coming along with Claude. Um, there are other models out there. Um, when I think about the equation for capturing and creating value, I, I think about the following inputs. One, you have some large corpus of proprietary data that you can build models off of. Okay, well, Microsoft checks the box on that. Two, you control some important engagement layer from which you can gather more data and refine your models. Well, Microsoft checks the box on that. 
because of course they, in both instances, they've got our office data, let alone what they do with Bing or otherwise. They've got our critical office data. And importantly, they know how to protect it in an enterprise way. They've, they've won the trust of, you know, really the vast majority of enterprise buyers of productivity software. Three, talent. Now this is the area where Microsoft was weakest and OpenAI arguably was strongest. I met with Sam Altman uh, back around the time I met with Satya and Sam said to me, um, we think there are roughly 50 people on the planet, scientists that are capable of building and developing these models like that. We have 25 of them. Okay. So, so uh, OpenAI definitely checks the box there. And, so, and to that earlier comment I made regarding what Satya said to me, clearly they didn't have the talent to build these, these models. The fourth thing you need is the, the sufficient capital to assemble the compute to build these models. These things are like like they're like battleship, or I mean, um, aircraft carrier uh, levels of spending to build these models, very, very expensive. And then fifth, and most importantly, you need some mechanism through which to express the value of the models and to get paid for it, right? So Microsoft checks five out of those four boxes and the area where they were weakest was on talent and they went and got the talent from OpenAI. Well, Microsoft's already experimenting with Llama 2. They're experimenting with other models. They, they are now building some of their own small language models. Um, so so I, I think Microsoft has a number of ways they can go. As a Microsoft shareholder, would I love it if that OpenAI team was picked up, 90% of them, and moved directly over to Microsoft under Sam's leadership? That'd be fantastic. But, um, but it's not essential to our thesis because mm -hmm. they check all those other boxes and then get they can, they can build, they can get models if they, if they need elsewhere. And importantly, as we understand it, they, they get access to the OpenAI models regardless of what happens to OpenAI. They get access to OpenAI software. What they don't get access to is AGI models that uh, OpenAI builds. Now, I don't really know like, how you even define AGI right now, um, but, but ultimately they've got all the IP out of OpenAI and it's, they may soon have many of the people. Yeah, and to be clear, for uh, people who aren't aware, so AGI is the notion of uh, uh, sort of a, that's the super duper endpoint here, right? It's right. like like uh, intelligence. Uh, it's not just about uh, 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 or in, it's intelligence in the true sense of the word. It, that it's a it's a self aware kind of uh, advanced kind of version of what we're seeing now, where you know, if you use Chat GPT it sometimes feels like you're talking to a human being or talking to a, a, a sentient uh, being of some kind, but you're not, it's, it's, right. a, it's, it's a predictive model. It's, it's super, it's brilliantly designed. All of this software is brilliantly designed, but it doesn't, it's not self-aware. So that's this notion that we're going to get to this place. That's the part that freaks the people out the most. Right. And, and I think kind of gets to what it would appear to be some debate internally at OpenAI about safety and, how far you should take these these models, but I don't think anyone's actually got one yet. Do they? I, I don't think so. I, I, I Sam once said to me, um, you know, they think their AGI is on five to seven years off, but they still need some critical insight, innovations, something, some profound insight that will allow them to pull that off. Now, maybe that's changed here in the past six months since I spoke with him, but um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's still a science problem, not just an engineering problem. Yeah.
I think it's the bottom line there. So, so when you talk, when you look at, um, you, you mentioned that um, you own a lot of the Magnificent Seven, but also have uh, uh, are a little more enthusiastic about some of the uh, smaller mid cap names. Let's talk a little bit about both. So, on, on the on the Magnificent Seven side, um, I know uh, we've been talking about it in Microsoft, and I know you have a large position in Microsoft. Um, what are your other? Which ones do you like the best? Otherwise, well, of that group, which ones are you the most enthusiastic about um, as you look for? Yeah, I, I will start at maybe Google. Um, while Google is is um, playing a bit of commercial catch up here, uh, they can check most of those boxes that I went through on that that equation of, of value creation. Right. Um, so so, so I, I think they're well positioned. Now, their cash register is going to change a little bit. Um, as we as we go to generative AI and generative AI gets put into the, the search experience in a much deeper way. And, and, and that, that could create some near-term headwinds, but I think over the long run, mm -hmm. it actually keeps us much more engaged with, with Google's engine. They become less of a, a route you to another website platform and more of a stay on their platform and have them solve problems for you. And ultimately, I think that gives them deeper insights into their customers and makes them even more essential to who, who they are routing service volume off to, like an airline or a uh, you know a hotel or otherwise. So, so you, I, you I worry about the like the ability to monetize, like from an advertising point of view. Yeah, it changes their cash register, but it doesn't change their their. Um, I, I think it actually could increase their monetization. And I will just I think we spoke about this last time I was on, but. Um, but I'm even more convinced of it now. If I put in a request to Google, say, hey, design me a trip to Hawaii and, um, um, you know, make it under $1,000, make it through XYZ dates, Google's in a, in a very good position to not only design that trip, but to book that trip for me and to decide who gets my business. Mm. And I, I, while the cash register will change, meaning how... An advertiser may might pay it to, to get traffic from Google. Now they're going to pay to get a trip from Google, right? They'll pay right. to get the hotel booking from Google. Like, wow, that's a really good spot to be in. But, but we're not going to see that next quarter. Like, this is going to this is a business model transition. And I think this gets at why um, Google was probably a little reluctant to. You know, they were out ahead of everybody on this stuff. A lot of this content, or these. Capabilities were built at Google, but I, I think they also intuited that it would be complicated for their how their cash register works. And so I think they were a little reluctant to to introduce it. But at the multiple it's trading at right now and the long term potential, I, I'm confident that there's real value there. Um, now we've yet to see that show up in their cloud business. We're seeing it show up right now in Microsoft's cloud business. But anyway, of the Magnificent Seven, that's an example of a company that I think um, has some real potential. How do you feel about Amazon here? So a Amazon, of course, is you know the leading player in the cloud. Yeah. They are developing LLMs. They have lots of tools. They have partnerships with other LLM developers. And they talk about it a lot. But there's sort of a perception, uh, I don't know if it's accurate or not, that they're a little behind. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I don't think they're as well positioned as, a, let's say, a Microsoft is because... They don't really, I mean, these models are very, very good. In the case of diffusion models at media uh, manipulation and in the case of language, 
a text manipulation and what is Microsoft's office suite all about, but, but knowledge workers and text mostly and data. And, and Amazon doesn't control a surface area like that. What they do have is a lot of the world's uh, enterprise workloads and the data around those. So they're, they're, they're not in a terrible spot, they're in a pretty good spot. And they've got a lot of developer attention and they've got enterprise trust. Um, you know, so, so I, I think they can figure this out and they've got to solve the talent problem, uh, particularly on AI, they've got a, a partnership with effectively a spin out of open AI in, in, in Anthropic. So, uh, so I, I think they'll figure this out. Um, and, and it's not a very expensive business right now. I mean, I'm not paying a lot for right. the, the value of the cloud, the value of e-commerce and the value of advertising. So, uh, so, but I, I think they'll figure this out, but, but yes, they're not as clearly you know, on paper as well positioned as a Microsoft is um, as, so obviously. Okay, so what, the other one I want to talk about on the large side um, is one that I don't think you do own, which is Meta. Um, we don't own Meta, that's right. What, what, why, so you own all the others, like why? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, and Meta is one of the more trackably valued of all the, the bunch. And many of the strategies in the team that I manage do own Meta. So, so I have chosen not to own it in the fund that we manage um, for a couple of reasons. One, we sell this strategy in Europe and we are an Article 8 strategy. So I'm hypersensitive to ESG considerations. Um, and on that point, I think that Meta is still figuring out how to make its platforms safe for young people to use and safe in different parts of the world. Now, importantly, I think these, these, and I think this is why they're leaning so heavily into the language models, these models will help them make their platform safer, period. They are gonna understand content in ways they never did before. And ultimately, I think that that's going to, to allow them to address some of the safety concerns I had. Um, but that, that's not settled science yet. I'm not a huge fan in the metaverse opportunity that they're going after, but like, I can see that the stock is fundamentally cheap, I see lots of opportunities for them to use generative AI across their messaging uh, businesses um, and uh, you know to build like uh, customer service applications. And then they're successfully using machine learning, uh, sort of the predecessors to generative AI to um, compete better now against TikTok and to solve some of the ad uh, attribution problems yeah. that Apple imposed on them. So, so I, 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 that's all to say like, I see a scenario where we could own it in the future, right. um, but we don't own it right now um, because of some of the concerns I highlighted at the beginning. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the layer above the LLMs, right? So um, the application layer, and there's uh, there's a whole set of companies. Basically, all the enterprise application companies are going after this, and yeah. some of them are a little further along. Uh, you mentioned Adobe earlier. Um, yeah. Adobe is, seems to be very aggressive in how they're approaching the opportunity here. Um, ServiceNow talks about this all the time. They they can't stop talking about it, right? Salesforce has addressed this as well, and uh, and you could uh, add to the list. So, of at that level, are there what which which ones are there names that you like in particular? Yeah, so all those names we own, Adobe in particular, I like because the value proposition for making a creative in the media space is just so super crystal clear. And importantly, they've got their own corpus of data that is, I believe, going to be clean of that copyright issue. And um, they're using it as a way to expand average revenue per user. 
Um, so that one I'm pretty bullish on. ServiceNow, I'm, I'm pretty positive on. Um, it, I think the, the street's a little concerned about how um, this may impact the seats. So the, the revenue equation at, at ServiceNow is sort of seats times ARPU or rev average revenue per user. Right. And this could diminish seat growth, but it will dramatically increase average revenue per user um, and, and ultimately uh, allow the people who build on the ServiceNow platform also to be much more productive. Right. Uh, because essentially there's a ServiceNow programming language also, mm -hmm. which, which you'll be able to be more effective with. So I, th I think they've got a big opportunity. Um, what was the other name you mentioned? ServiceNow? Oh, oh, Salesforce. Um, yeah, Salesforce, we own that too. Uh, that's a little more around their opportunity to run the business more efficiently, but certainly they've got a large corpus of data, of meaningful data that, it, that I'm confident they have still not expressed or gotten enough value out of vis-a-vis, um, -vis, um, you know, cust the customer record effectively and, and the like. So, so they have a big opportunity there. They've been around this for a while, less on the, the large language side of things and more on the machine learning side of things. But um, importantly, and this is the big idea across the application layer, I believe that just like when a child sits down in front of an iPad and, or any computing device now and touches it, and if it doesn't respond to touch, people kind of think the application, the, that child thinks the, the device is broken. Um, mm -hmm. I think we are going to think similarly about applications. If there is not a strong artificial intelligence component to an application and in uh, in the case of text-oriented applications, if there's not a strong generative element to the application, I think application buyers are going to assume that these products are broken. And um, and so, so this is why when you go through the product roadmaps of everybody over the, in tech over the past three or four quarters, they've all been reoriented dramatically because they are realizing this important change is coming and they've got to be ready for where their customers are going to be in a year from now. Okay. Uh, a few other things. We're getting... We're going to go a few minutes over here. That's um, what we tend to do. Um, so one, one thing we haven't talked about, and I think the the largest company, well, the largest company uh, by market cap, uh, hasn't really defined its AI strategy, which is Apple. And I know Apple's large holding. It's pretty hard to run a technology fund without owning Apple. Yeah. Um, but, but they've been, uh, you know, they talk about it a little bit, like on the last earnings call. Um, somebody asked him about their AI strategy and he kind of said, we're investing a lot, a lot, is kind of what he said. But he didn't really give any real clarity in what they're doing. On the other hand, like they've had neural uh, neural engine capability in their processors since like 2017. Yep. So they've been, they've been laying the groundwork, um, but there's no clear go-to-market approach here for them. And I'm fascinated about this. Like, I, I wonder what they do. Is it about Siri? Do they get into search? Are there new applications? Or is it something else? How do you think about Apple? Or AI? Well, they certainly can't come back to the market with a, a another Siri that, that is a bit of a flop. Their first Siri was a flop. Um, I, I think you set it up well. Um, and, and in general, they monetize through two things, through... Um, continuing, me continuing to stay in their ecosystem and buying that next iPhone every year, right. me buying another piece of hardware that strengthens that platform effect, and me buying adjacent services, or, and or me not churning, which is tied to that first, right. that first thing. Um, and I think that, that AI for, for, for them will be primarily about keeping me in the ecosystem and 
them leveraging and leaning into which is their most important asset, which is my trust. Mm -hmm. Right. I have a very clean, crisp relationship with Apple in that they have a lot of my very important data. They have my passwords, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They know I, mean, I carry, there's nobody that I spend more time with period than Apple in my life, including my wife. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I wear a watch on my hand. I got a iPhone with me. Um, so, so in that relationship of trust and with their data, uh, which is effectively my data, I think they're very well positioned and they will monetize primarily through keeping me in their ecosystem mm -hmm. and maybe finding some new piece of hard for me to buy from them. And maybe me paying to support, uh, you know, the advanced capabilities on their platform. Cause these running these AI models are not without a cost, right? Oh, and yes. so they're gonna have to figure yes. out how to monetize that. So they maybe there'll be incremental services, but, you're right. Of all of the Magnificent Seven, they've got the weakest AI talk track right now. But maybe it's just because they haven't said anything yet. But that doesn't yeah, mean it's hard to tell. Uh, they tend to be leaky, but uh, they also they won't talk about things that they're not ready to. Uh, but, yeah, but but let's give them some credit. They they they're the only player on the edge that's got neural networks, as far as I can tell, in right. in their their devices. So they're right. they're they're not in a bad spot. Right. All right. I know. By the way, uh, to your point about the ubiquity of, uh, of Apple in, uh, in your life. Uh, I'm sitting here doing this, uh, doing this, uh, discussion with you on my MacBook, uh, with my phone, uh, my, uh, my iPhone about three inches away and I have right. an Apple watch on my wrist. So, uh, I'm kind of all in on myself. So, uh, so I, I, I agree with you. It's that, uh, that, that, and those relationship, that relationship they have with customers, uh, tends to be, um, remarkably tight and uh, consistent. But, but, they, but they do have two interesting risks that, that we're paying a lot of attention to. One, a lot of business in China and real efforts yeah. by the government to to sort of rein them in a bit uh, in China. Um, and then two, they've got this sort of opaque but very material relationship with Google. And obviously there's a lawsuit going on right now regarding yeah. how those payments may or may not be able to continue. So, so there's some risk there too that we're paying attention to yeah there have been some data points that have come out of that trial uh yep. which is now so the trial just uh, people are aware the trial has basically wrapped up there'll be closing arguments in may so it's still a little ways away and so we we would expect uh probably to get a ruling from the judge i don't know maybe this time next year potentially there's a pretty good chance that however it Whatever the judge rules, we're going to get an appeal. So we got a few years away, probably from this all getting resolved. But yeah, the heart of the case is Google's uh, search relationship with Apple, right. and there's tens of billions of dollars at stake. So it's it's going to be fascinating uh, to see how that plays out. So um, one other thing I just want to touch on is um, uh, some of the other cloud players, right? So uh, there's a bunch of companies all with models that sort of look like the cloud players, right? So they have these. Consumption models, companies like Snowflake, yep. Mongo, and Datadog, and these tend to be um, high growth, high multiple uh, uh, companies. But they have uh, they are a direct play on the cloud. It's a little one, a little less certain to me how they play um, from an AI point of view. Oh, uh, yeah, really for me that's really clear. Um, okay. Yeah. That, so Franklin here, we're experimenting. We're in this sort of build and experimentation phase ourselves. And we look around and we see, God, we've got tremendous data assets everywhere. 
Well, right. step one is get your data state in 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 order. Now, right. thankfully, we are Snowflake users here. I think we also use uh, some Databricks here. So, at least in parts of the enterprise, we've got our data state in order. So now we can start innovating mm -hmm. and doing interesting stuff with AI. We've already been doing it for years, but in this generative era, now we're able to extend on that. Mm -hmm. So, so if you're an enterprise player that hasn't gotten your data state together, that's step one of all this work. And, and that's where you're gonna get the unique value. So, mm -hmm. so while we've seen some headwinds on consumption for Snowflake and the other consumption models, we're also seeing evidence of stabilization there. I do not think investors appreciate what is gonna come next, which is people going back into that data estate and getting it organized so they can start doing the important work around proprietary model building off of their enterprise data. That's really interesting. So, because you're you're so one thing that has happened in the last few quarters on the in the cloud space more generally is this uh, trend that they like to call optimization, which is yeah, yeah. basically customers trying to spend less on the cloud, right? Right, right, right. Um, right. It has a fancy name, and right. and the companies, all the cloud companies, talk about how we're helping our customers with their optimization optimization strategies and stuff, which is trying to get them to like maybe take more and spend the same amount. But, but let's remember what happened during COVID, like people were just building like crazy. Right. There was no time for thinking about how to do this the best way. You had to yeah. stand up digital experiences because you had to stay in business. Right. So it's natural that we're in a bit of an optimization phase, especially when coupled with the fact that that the world reopened and so we get we get to calm down a little bit. So we're this is very rational. I don't see this as eroding the structural opportunity around cloud at all. Okay. And do you do you own the you own Snowflake and we own Snowflake. We own Mongo. We own Databricks on the private side. Um, so, okay. Oh, and that brings me to what I, I, I where I want to uh, to wrap up, which is uh, it is a little unusual um, in the construction of your portfolio that you're able to own some private names. Yeah. Um, and uh, including Databricks and um, I think you know, Stripe and like a few other uh, Canva and Solonis. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question is. Um, how are you feeling about the one part of this beautiful picture of our technology that hasn't happened, which is a re-emergence of the capital markets to yeah. allow IPOs? There's also not much M&A, by the way. Um, yeah. Uh, right. So if you're a private company, um, can't really get the Magnificent Seven to buy you because like lean on like the rest of the regulatory infrastructure, both in DC and elsewhere, is making it very difficult to do that. Then on the IPO side, we've had a few IPOs. Uh, we had three uh, in the last, you know, couple of months, and there was some hope that maybe that would trigger some, you know, a little bit more energy in the IPO market. And of course, it hasn't. There isn't. There aren't, haven't been any follow-ups since, you know, since those three deals yep. went. How are you feeling about the outlook for IPOs? And do do when? What is it? What's it going to take to get um, get the window? Two things. Yeah, yeah. Two two things. First off, let me just say that um, not only my strategy, but many of the strategies in the Franklin Equity Group have, have been able to participate in owning later stage privates. They're relatively small parts of our position, our portfolios mm -hmm. under 5% typically, but they're incredible sources of insight and they prepare us very well for when these companies do go public and then we generate a lot of alpha. Now, the two things that we need to see uh, for the, the window to open, and we've already gotten part one of it, uh, mm -hmm. We need to say a stabilization in rates, so a, so a, a terra firma for multiples. We're, we're kind of there right now. That's good. Mm -hmm. And 
two, we need to see businesses be able to have some predictability, right? The last thing that a company wants to do is go public and miss uh, first one or two quarters out of their gate because folks on my side of the table uh, have really short memories sometimes and they, they just, it takes a long time to forgive a new issue um, if, if you miss out of the first one or two uh, quarters out of the gate. So they're all, at least on the enterprise side of, of the potential capital market side of things, they're all wondering, can I actually predict what my business is going to do in 2024 and 2025? And while they're all, you, I, we talked earlier about the amount of references to stabilization we're seeing in earnings reports now, they're, they're seeing stabilization. They're not seeing sort of a reacceleration of growth yet. So they don't, they can't right. really, at a, with a fine point, say, I'm confident that I'll be able to do, you know, uh, X amount of growth in 2024 and Y amount of growth in 2025. They're just not there yet. I think if, if we're right and we're in this soft landing scenario, then that predictability element is going to go up. And, and then the capital markets will probably open solidly uh, by the, the, mid part of 2025. Um, so that's what our, our work 25? is. 25? Mid part of 2025 is I think, 20, 2025 is when I think they're going to open. Oh, so we have to wait a little longer. We got to wait a little longer. Now, I would note that like, if you're if you're an investor in, as you are, like Databricks, um, they're in a good position. They have, yeah, I mean, listen, if Ollie's, I doubt Ollie's on the call right now, but hey, if you're ready to go public, we're ready to play more stock we would love to be uh love to be liquid there they have a great uh future ahead of them we believe great jonathan thanks so much uh this was a great conversation great. Uh, i keep going but we uh, will uh we'll leave it there um okay thanks for, thanks for being with us and um thanks to everyone for joining us today on the call uh please join us again tomorrow at baron's live when uh market watch uh reporter um uh, Victor Reclitus uh, will speak with Sarah Briner, who's the director of research at Open Secrets, uh, which tracks campaign finance uh, issues. Uh, that's uh, a timely topic as we head into the 2024 elections. Uh, please join us for that. Thanks for being with us. Uh, see you again next time. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.